0: Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 209, Paul II. Dear brothers and sisters, annuncio vobis, annuncio vobis. annuncio vobis, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, gaudium magnum, habemus papam. So we met today's pope last week, he was the Venetian-born Pietro Barbo. Born in 1417, he was the nephew of Pope Eugene IV, and thus the grandnephew of Pope Gregory XII. So his family was important, and originally Pietro and his brother Paolo were planning a career as merchants. Now we've got two different stories about how he started working in the church, and actually this is a good place to pause and talk about the sources surrounding Paul II in general. Those who wrote the most during this time, the the histories and essays and otherwise, they were the Renaissance humanists in Rome and, and Florence and elsewhere. And they really didn't like Pope Paul II, and we'll see why in a bit. Now we have a lot, even though we have a lot of first-hand testimony about him. Some of it is particularly biting. Anyway, one source tells us that while when Eugene IV became pope, he urged Pietro's parents to switch him from business to the church, and. He began the process of his education and elevation. Another source, one that didn't like him as much, said that it was Pietro's brother, Paolo, who suggested that the Pope uh, should switch him to the church because he wasn't very good at business. He wasn't really fit for that kind of career. Anyway, Pietro entered the service of the church and his uncle moved him up swiftly through the ranks. When he was only 23 in 1440, he was appointed a cardinal and a bishop. He was a suave, good-natured man who everyone basically liked. He liked to dress in lavish robes and live well, but people seemed to forgive him that because of how genial he was. He was liked by Pope Nicholas V and by Sixtus III, but under Pius II, he seems to have taken a step back. We don't have too much to talk about during his time as a cardinal except the construction of a massive palazzo or palace near the Venetian church of San Marco in Rome. The Palazzo San Marco, which today is called the Palazzo Venezia or the Palazzo Barbo after Cardinal Pietro Barbo, is really in the heart of Rome. It's one of the first major constructions done in Renaissance style. And for that, it deserves notice. It looks a little bit like a castle from the outside, which makes sense. Rome was still a mess of competing families, and the interchanges between them often turned violet. But inside, it was luxurious and spacious. In 1464, the cardinals joined in a conclave to elect the successor to Pope Pius II. Now, we've got to pause here and talk about a phenomenon that's been occurring over the past few conclaves, and that's the practice of the pre-conclave capitulation. Before the conclave, all the cardinals would get together and make a promise that when they are pope, if they are pope, they will act in a certain way. This came into fashion during the Great Western Schism, when the cardinals would pledge before the conclave to do everything in their power if elected to heal the schism, including being willing to resign the papacy. Now, after the schism, a lot of the capitulations were about promising to give the College of Cardinals more of a say in the daily governance of the church, and that the pope wouldn't appoint new cardinals without their consent or would give them so much money as allowances or whatever. Now, the challenge with these is that if you were going to be elected pope, you didn't want to be bound by the promises you made when you were just a cardinal. But all the other cardinals wanted you to. So a lot of popes tried to figure out what kind of wording they would give when making the promise that would allow them to then kind of get out of it later. The capitulation devised in 1464 had the goal of making the pope more dependent on and subjected to the cardinals. It bound the future pope to continue the crusade against the Turks, which we talked about last week. He also had to summon a general council to help reform things, and he could only make new cardinals if the rest of the cardinals gave their consent. The cardinals would review all important decisions of the new pope. When the first ballot took place, Pietro Barbo had 11 votes. He was such a good-natured person that it was easy for the cardinals to choose him, and he was quickly elected on that first ballot. Now, apparently Pietro Barbo originally wanted to take the papal name Formosus II, not because of the infamous Pope Formosus I, who we've talked about a long time ago, but because in Latin, Formosa means beautiful, and apparently Pietro Barbo had a very high opinion of himself and his looks. The Cardinals balked and said, you can't do that, so next Cardinal Barbo suggested taking Mark as a name, since he's the patron of Venice, his hometown, but the Cardinals said, no, that's almost too politically charged. It's like taking the name Pope America or something like that. And so then he settled on Paul II, which happened to be his brother's name. Pope Paul II was very much a fan of ecclesiastical finery. He revived the practice of using a triple tiara, which had fallen out of favor for a period of time. And he had a beautiful jewel-encrusted tiara made for his coronation. He wanted the cardinals to look good, too. And on the first, he was one of the first people to give the cardinals permission to wear their red hats and their purple cloaks on a daily basis. Now, three days after his coronation, the Pope was required to publish a bull, which confirmed the election capitulation made before the conclave. Three days came and went, and nothing happened. Pope Paul instead consulted several legal authorities to see if he was really bound by the capitulation, and they all said no. So instead, he drew up a new document, which was more friendly to the papacy, and brought all the cardinals in and forced them to sign it. The... Old and august Greek cardinal Bessarion the dean of the College of Cardinals, tried to escape signing it, in fact. And the pope had him dragged back into the room and the doors locked until he agreed to sign it. Pope Paul II was a Renaissance man in the sense that he appreciated beauty and splendor. He accumulated a large collection of art, jewels, and other ancient items, which he kept in his palace that was being built uh, at the Church of San Marco. He encouraged the newfound art of printing with movable type, which had been brought to Italy from Germany during his papacy and which started the production of printed books. For those who know the city of Rome, one very important aspect of the city can be traced to the Pope, and in order to win the affection of the Roman people, Pope Paul II beefed up the city's celebration of Carnival, allowing elaborate horse races to take place on one of the main streets in Rome, the Via Lata. Now, the fact that that street was used for racing caused the name of the street to be changed to the Via del Corso, and that is still its name today. He wasn't a total Renaissance man. In fact, during his papacy, a group of Renaissance scholars who were hostile to the faith created a small academy in Rome. Under the leadership of Bartolomeo Sacchi da Piadina, known to history as Plantina, this group promoted a secularized view of learning and the arts. Their cabal started ostensibly as a group devoted to learning, but it soon seems to have turned sinister. There was some sort of plot to attack or kill the Pope, and it was discovered, and it seems to point back to this group, It's all pretty hazy in the historical record, but it seems that some of the group were charged enough with the secular mindset that they wanted to overthrow the church entirely. And so when word got back to the Pope in 1468, he cracked down harshly on the academy, disbanded it, and drove many of its members into exile. The need for a crusade against the rapidly moving Turks was as evident as ever, but just like last week, the Pope wasn't able to accomplish much. He pledged a large sum of his own money to the cause, which we'll find out later he didn't really seem to have, Most of it was tied up in jewels and things like that. But he couldn't get much of the princes of Europe on board. They were all divided amongst themselves, and several of the northern Italian city-states had good trading relationships with the Turks, and they didn't want to hurt business. Business was more important than defending the European continent from the Ottomans. In the meantime, the Turks were moving through the Balkans at an alarming rate. Unable to accomplish much in regards to a crusade, We don't have too much left to say about Pope Paul II's pontificate. He was a generous man. Despite his apparent vanity and love of splendor, he gave liberally to the poor and to those around him. As one writer said, however, it may be regretted that the mitre was compelled to give way too much to the tiara and that his pontificate displayed an excess of worldly splendor. On July 26, 1471, he suffered a stroke while preparing to go to bed. He died that evening and was later buried in St. Peter's Basilica. He was succeeded by Pope Sixtus IV, and we will talk about him next week. Thanks for listening to Habemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you, and God bless you.